everyone. Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to those across the pond. I'm Jason Miles, your host for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. I apologize for our tardiness. It's my fault. We're having some technical issues in the background. Had to get those all resolved because once we brought the guest in, we wanted a nice, smooth transition as I am very excited about the show today. But first, if you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe. And if you like what you see, make sure to hit the notifications bell as we're constantly adding new episodes. You can watch the second installment of Revolutionary Reckoning this Thursday. We'll debut our new intro to the show that our background super producer Quinn put together. So... Thank you, Quinn, for putting together these great new intro and outros. They're really awesome. Um, Also, this past Wednesday, we had another episode of Gaming Materialists, a leftist discussion of tabletop gaming. They launched their new look and lineup that they'll be doing with the show. That's uh, the second, third Wednesday of every month. Uh, also, if you guys are fans of the call-in app, I was a guest on Marcus and Karthik's Revolutionary Tracks, where we discussed my upcoming Woodstock 99 essay that will be out in Sublation Magazine this Monday. I should not forget to mention that this Wednesday will be our most popular of the TIR Presents shows, The Mau Mau Hour, with Pascal Robert. If you want to view it live and call in, and comment, talk to Pascal, tell him how you really feel. There's only one way, become a patron. Not only will you be able to talk to Pascal, but you'll have unlimited access to the champagne room and movie night, which sadly I wasn't able to do for my birthday because my equipment didn't work. So take that. But for as little as $3 a month, you can be part of 
TIR patron family. That being said, let me bring in the TIR crew. First and foremost, the man of Mau Mau Hour, my co-host, my homie, my dog, the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy Get it? Get it? What? What? Happy birthday. Happy birthday. I should get up so you guys can see these little ass shorts I'm wearing. It pop my butt. No? Not, that's not the hot look for summer? Okay. Well, I would fit in with a lot of my neighbors. Little do you know. <laughs> also, coming all the way live from one of the darkest parts of America, that would be the D.C. area. Only second to Baltimore. Chocolate City's resident mayor. He's the mayor of Chocolate City. I'm going to say that because his hair is fabulous. Once again, I have to let him know that I hate him and I hate his family for having good, hairy ass jeans. Jamaican son of a bitch. Please welcome Marcus of the Left Flank Vets. Whoa. Look at him. Oh, so, man. What's up? What's going on? When you're beautiful. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. As I sip. (laughs) <laughs> from my coffee that I'm sure somebody spit in. <laughs> in the heart of the empire. If you look like me, he did. Fucking pretty motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Spitting your shit like Nino Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I need to watch that again. Yes, yes, Marcus. Yeah. You are the Christopher Williams of this show. The <laughs> 30th anniversary this year. Of Christopher Williams passing? Of uh, no, of uh, New Jack City. New Jack City. <laughs> I was like, do we celebrate Christopher Williams? It was the 30th anniversary of him uh, fucking up Henry. Did he die? Did he die? No, he's alive. He's alive. Oh, okay. Remember when he married Halle Berry? He wasn't the one that married Halle Berry. Stop it. Yeah. Or no, he he dated her and he apparently hit her. Well, you know who they blame. They said that Wesley's the one who caused her to be deaf in one ear. I thought it was David Justice. Justice caught him. He Justice was married to her. Yeah, but I thought he was the one that was like allegedly. You don't listen. The word allegedly. I'm not trying to start any rumors. Any liability. So, no, man. no. I I never tell you about the time Halle Berry got at my, my younger brother in San Francisco. She was trying to mack it. He called me up because I didn't believe him. I was like, bullshit, pictures or it didn't happen. And he called up and he showed me a picture and I was like, oh my God, I think it's time for you to leave your wife and just cheat with 50-year-old Halle Berry. Like, you have a pass. Yeah. Dr. Claus said Christopher Williams and David Dishes both denied those claims. In fact, it was Justice who implied Wesley Snipes. Wow. Y'all just need to leave Halle alone. Speaking of Halle Berry, our resident Halle Berry, 
Halle Berry, if she was from Brooklyn, the the headless voice of reason, M. Tucson. Hello, hello, everyone. I call my brother's son because he shine like one. <laughs> oh, very <laughs> New York. MT, I want to first of all say thank you so much. You sent me like the sweetest birthday gift. Um, I, I never get to open anything, and so I got to like open all this fun stuff you got. So thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Happy birthday gift, you man. You did. I'm not gonna say what you got, but you told me you didn't get him anything. You I put a lot of thought into it. Uh, Pascal was uh, the first person to call me, so yes, thank you very much. Marcus didn't call me. You know why Marcus didn't call me? You want to know why? You want to know why Marcus didn't call me? Because he doesn't have Facebook. That's everybody's you, birthday count. When did, yeah, like, did you call me on my birthday? Do you know when my birthday? You know why I didn't call you? Not on Facebook. Not on Facebook. <laughs> don't need to know. That's just one piece of information you can add to another. Because you are find where I live. Lord, and you didn't go oh, to the That process. is the real reason. Isn't it, Marcus? Wait, what's up? Because you're a dark, a dark Sith Lord who did not go through the normal birthing process. <laughs> Marcus doesn't have a belly button. As me, Darth Vader, Kim Jong Un, we're, we're all the same. We're all the same. That's why Marcus is so smiley because he's not on social media. Because I don't have to. Poop. We have to be honest about that. That's really why he's a, a happy camper. Um, also, I think we'll have a, I'll have the official announcement because we'll have the flyer will be up. But we're doing a TIR live show in LA October 23rd. All right. Will Pascal be there? We have to see. It'll be me in a Pascal suit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's uh this is revolution in conjunction with give them an argument. So we're gonna have special guests, some fun topics. I'm excited for it. Musical guests, Ti. No, Ti will not be there. But it would be funny if Ti is there. Ti is not in the budget. Walking around. IT isn't even a budget. Maybe, maybe we can get another member of Tiny's group, Escape. Uh, I like Escape. You do. You would like Escape. Shut up. I like kids. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know who the artist is, but Suge Knight will be the promoter. So Suge Knight. <laughs> I feel like Suge Knight's the promoter as we're negotiating with this fucking venue. <laughs> this is how much you take, punk. <laughs> Nothing, Phil. <laughs> okay. Didn't T.I. get into a fight with a comedian recently? I feel like that's the last thing I remember about T.I., but... The last time I saw T.I., true story, um, a news story had came out about him saving someone's life. I'm not even trying to be funny. And later that day, as I was walking out of the Fox Theater in Atlanta on tour with Yo Gabba, 
I bumped into T.I. and his family, and they didn't have tickets to come see the, the second show. I think we did two or three shows that day. And as I was walking out, uh, T.I., I saw T.I., and I was like, holy shit, it's T.I., and he's not a very tall man. And his whole family was like little people. And I was like, oh, shit, hold on, let me get you, let me get you in. And, uh, and I ran in to one of the tour promoters, and I said, Hey, dude, T.I.'s outside of his family, man. Can I get some passes to get him in? And uh, he goes, yeah, sure, sure. Give him a, give him a backstage pass. I mean, get him backstage. I get, I get pass, give the T.I. I, I escort him and his family uh, in, get him some, some good seats and stuff. And then uh, the promoter dude looks at me and he goes, oh, man, that is, is he in? I was like, yeah, 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 he's in. He's, that's, that's him. He goes, who's T.I.? Yeah. <laughs> By the way. By the way. Yeah. I met Kim Fields that day. She was there. I feel like this might be actually a perfect intro uh, into the story or into the interview (laughs) because you can you can just walk in somewhere and say, yeah. It's just a little Revy right here, house. right? And it's like I just point to Jason Miles, and he's got tattoos, and it's like, oh yeah, little Revy. <laughs> oh, we Revy. should we should give him free shit. Yes. This is little Revy. You, you know who else did that? Paul Stanley did that in L.A. Paul Stanley literally walked up to the people in L.A. and went. Nice. If you don't know who Paul Stanley is, he is the lead singer of Kiss. He went. Come on. Not the one with the tongue. Not the one with the tongue, no. That's Gene Paul Simmons. Is, it's Gene Simmons. Paul Stanley is a lot nicer than Gene Simmons, but I did think that was the funniest thing ever when he went, hey. <laughs> I want to be able to do that. Marcus, that's what I'm be able to do at every Barnes & Noble across America, every coffee shop, every boutique coffee shop in America, I want to be able to walk in and go, hey. For the audio listeners. Light foam. Yeah. <laughs> Light foam on that. Hey. But uh, several of you might find today's guest and topic a bit mysterious since the story of Laura Albert and JT Leroy seem almost lost in history. Show business is filled with aspirational characters who attempt to achieve fame and fortune by faking it until they make it. But where does this wishful thinking end and full-on hoax begin? Today we're going to be speaking with Marjorie Sturm. 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 I've been saying Sturm. How is that hard? Sturm. I've been saying, I was saying it wrong when I met her because my eyes flip flopped. The flim flammed. And I was calling her Strum. And then Jean wrote it Strum originally. And it's like Sturm. Sturm. Jason's like, I'm just a small bean with a learning disability. It's hard for me to say names. The letters move. That's where they move. <laughs> <laughs> How the hell you get the beans, Bud Franks? <laughs> Longtime community advocate in the San Francisco Bay Area and documentary filmmaker and film teacher is coming on to tell us about her documentary she made about the fascinating tale of J.T. Leroy and the literary hoax that fooled not just the literary community but all of show business for almost ten years. Please welcome. 
coming all the way live from my former home, San Francisco, California. Marjorie. <laughs> you guys Marjorie, I know you, you had to you had to withstand the long pre-show banter that we do on this program. It's quite normal. I understand it can be quite disconcerting, but please, <laughs> you know, thank you for staying 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 with us. And holding on, you know, we try to we get a little silly on our Saturday shows. Jason had a birthday yesterday, so forgive us for keeping you in the Happy way. Happy birthday! Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you for having me. You guys are really funny. I was oh, no, enjoying. No, this this is this is a, a huge deal for me because I've I've I first heard about JT Leroy randomly uh, dicking around on Amazon, and I watched Laura Albert, who is the original writer of the book's documentary. Um, my lady friend somehow found you on Twitter and for some reason got you and Laura, because I didn't know Laura Albert's name actually till I talked to you and you said it enough times where I was like, oh, her name is Laura Albert, not just crazy white lady. Um, so meeting you via the internet, I found your documentary, which totally was like, I was already kind of asking a lot of questions, so your documentary definitely answered all the questions that I had about the original story of, of JT Leroy, because honestly, um, it is something that I don't really remember. The name sounded kind of familiar, but I mean, in the late 90s, who's really reading books anyway, right? <laughs> Come on, we're watching Fear Factor, Jackass. Um, nobody really cares about books. That's for smart people. That being said, who is JT Leroy? Okay. Uh, well, JT Leroy is basically, oh my goodness, that's a, that's a big one. Um, JT Leroy was a 15-year-old street hustler, you know, addicted to heroin, um, orphan, basically, who left his mother seriously abused. He came from like a Christian fundamentalist background. And he ended up writing these books that became bestsellers while he was homeless in the Tenderloin over a number of years. And then, um, you know, these, like an outreach worker found him and introduced him to a therapist and his books were dedicated to a therapist. And, you know, they became bestsellers. So at first it was sort of like the literary community his therapist introduced him to like a literary agent and then the literary community got behind him and then, you know, the healing community got behind him and then the celebrity community got behind him. And, you know, he was too shy and seriously agoraphobic for many years. And then he finally came out and, um, you know, started making public appearances and um, it went on for like 11 years until it, it stopped. It ended, and it was all basically a hoax. Now, we have a character in our world, or had um, a character in our world named Amy Therese that had a slightly similar, you know, there's an avatar of a person that says things on Twitter, and these things were controversial, yeah. and people would, you know, get riled up behind it. And my first thing was, well, where's this person's show, or where can I find them and hear them? Like, oh, well, they don't really come out. I was like, oh, it's not a real person. So why do you care? 
And everyone would be like, no, no, it's, I was like, it's not a real person. In 2022, anyone, everyone wants to be famous. And it's really easy to be famous. No one's going to sit behind a keyboard and Twitter and hide and not show their face. There's there's numerous shows that we talk about <laughs> behind the scenes of people that have tried to monetize their Twitter personality. So uh, was it Amy Therese was the person's name? That's the that's the person, right, Marcus? Am I saying it right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, I think there is, I mean, this kind of figure to you make it concept. There's there's a few other, you know, like the Anna Delve Delvey, you know. Oh, uh, that's recent. Yeah. Yeah, that that uh, like that, and I even like in a sense to even too of like, like uh, Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, you know, like I feel like this, you know, this slides, you know, this this, you know, into just how do you do a scam? Um, you, and... Have you followed the Rachel Dolezal? Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That might. That... I, I find her slightly more interesting than JT Leroy, and this is interesting that you said Rachel Dolezal. That's really interesting that you say that, because there was a lot of what I think some people would call turfy conversations around uh, why it should be okay for Rachel Dolezal to call herself transracial. Um, and identify, and, and I think her biggest mistake was when she got outed, she should have just been like, yeah, I'm a white chick and left it at that. But right. she kept doubling down as if almost she didn't know what to do because she was in a corner. Because her story actually is kind of weird. She does have black adopted siblings that her parents had um, adopted when she was a younger teenager. But she actually got custody of her brother. So she she has three children. Technically, she has two that she birthed and one adopted. And the state gave that boy to her because her her parents were so abusive. So there is something to be said about the abuse that was suffered. And Rachel and her uh, black sister that was adopted say that her older brother uh, had sexually assaulted them for some time. And he's the one that outed her. And also, um, once they were trying to bring charges on him, then the story of her lying came out. So no one even listens to the sister anymore. Um, and then I don't know if you guys ever spent time in Spokane, Washington. Unfortunately or unfortunately, I want to look at it. I've spent a lot of time in Spokane, Washington as a touring musician. Not a lot of Negroes there. We coming for you, nigga. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, I, it felt like the people that were really mad at her were mad at her because she took a position that they wanted. And it also felt like, and there's a huge uh, white nationalist racist population in that entire region that goes all the way to western Montana. And it felt like outing her also covered up the racism that was very that is very prevalent in that area as well. So she kind of served these interesting purposes. And she's one of the few people that you can't be infamous and famous at the same time. Because what she did was to a lot of people extremely offensive. And if you watch the documentary about her, her son is probably the most intriguing character in it. Because it's her son that says, I don't agree with everything my mom says. And he's very close with this. 
and and he's like um i wish she wouldn't say the things that she says because it has these negative effects on the rest of us her 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 adopted son her brother wanted to go to howard where she went but because she went there there was so much pushback that he didn't even want to go to howard and i forget where he ended up going to law school so she's an interesting character because you can't always be um infamous and then famous i don't know pascal you may disagree i know i agree with you i think the thing is though even though she is kind of born out of a traumatic kind of abuse situation as well the thing about jt Leroy that i find fascinating is that like everyone when i one of the things about the documentary that i I found disturbing somewhat not in a bad way but disturbing is that all of the initial individuals who are talking about how they interface with them early on before became faces famous they were all men who struck me as having having some type of predatory nature they all struck me as i'm not saying they were sexually predatory of him, but they all struck me. I, I, they, there was something unseemly about the fact that this young, underaged, you know, sexually abused, homeless child is the center of attention of all of these middle-aged men. <laughs> you know, was disturbing to me. And if you want to address that, Marjorie, I would love to. Well, it's it's interesting because it really just wasn't men. Like I tried to reach out to more women and they didn't come on. But I think it I mean, I think it worked on a lot of levels in that he was, you know, you know, coming out as queer or like they weren't even saying trans. So I think they there was sort of a sympathy or an empathy um, for that. And he was I mean, he 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 would offer you know blowjobs to everyone basically well, that's Men, what I'm saying. women <laughs> everyone and and war albert had like an experience as being a phone sex operator so there was a degree of trying to do entrapment when they cannot but i heard it from like women straight men gay men it would be like whoever could get manipulated and i have to say though it was like she was like an equal opportunity abuser you know she entrapped whoever she could so the gay men might have been more um pray but it wasn't re- it really st- like you know if i had to do it it was it was a lot of women too who got re- roped okay. in for hours sharon well. olds was part of it too right sharon olds spent hours every i mean so many people but i mean she definitely manipulated you know and we know that you know whether it's straight men with younger women um you know 20 years gay men with younger i mean people and especially if you're a sex worker this isn't someone who's in <laughs> and by the time he was in his 20s you know what i mean there was like a sexual mystique that was being manipulated as well i mean because that's what her work was that was her trade well can we kind of like go back i guess because like <laughs> i think like we kind of went from like who's jt Leroy, and then like you know Right into there. Yeah, like right into like uh, kind of like blowjobs. Yeah, like can you? Because the thing is too is like when you're talking about yeah, be having a psychiatrist and then starting to do all these like book deals and everything like that. Can you talk about more of the process and who was Laura Albert in in this process? Well, yeah. Oh, my good goodness. question, Marcus. Good question. Yeah. Thank. Well, it's just like I mean, that's just like we watched the documentary, so like. 
Well, I, that I, there's I, a lot of puzzle pieces that might be you know, totally. Empty. I mean, yeah. it's a really complicated story, and you know, and I have I worked in mental health um, at the time. Just like the prep is that I worked as a case manager in the Tenderloin when this story came to me. I was working with mentally ill homeless in the San Francisco in the Tenderloin. So I was someone who you know was initially pretty sympathetic to someone writing these books, you know, as a homeless person in the Tenderloin. I was like a perfect mark for Laura Albert. So she she's a woman from, you know, actually very similar background as me in a certain way. Like we're both Russian Jews from New York, you know, so which is interesting. And we're around the same age and so forth. And um, I don't come from, but uh, she does seem to, I mean, I think it, the direction does point that she comes from kind of you know, a divorced family with its own set of problems. You know what I mean? Certainly not the level of, you know, abuse or problems that JT Leroy came from. But, you know, I think the issue being like, if she was to tell her own story about being divorced and having eating disorders, and you're like a middle-class woman, like that's not that exciting for a memoir deal. Like, you know, but if you're like bathed in lying, you're coming from a Christian fundamental, you're fundamentalist family, you're pimped out by your mother, you're a heroin addict, and then she would mirror and mimic whatever, so I, I, as I said to Jason on the phone, she was everything but black, basically. I mean, if you were talking, <laughs> she really was, like if she was talking to someone Native American, I'm part Native American, oh, my mother's schizophrenic too, like you literally, if you were to trace it in her article, she would take whatever the, you know, like oppression or underclass, you know, issue, yeah. And you know, kind of you know, absorb it for her own for JT's own. But, Mar issue. but Marjorie, isn't and you're in academia, isn't that one of the big knocks, especially in the humanities, that so and no one talks about this, and 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 this is probably where I derailed your point no, about no, 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 Rachel no. Dolezal. Rachel Dolezal didn't really exist in academia, even though you know she's just a woman with a degree, but she wasn't an academic per se. Um, she wasn't writing books about the black experience, but there's right. so many people that write about the native experience. You have Jess Bombalera, who was an activist. You know, she got outed. There's more people that don't get outed publicly that lie and say they're native to give totally. authenticity. Well, that's the word, authenticity. But the one question thing about Rachel Dolezal, and I totally agree with you, if she could have just come clean, quote unquote, and just said, this is my experience, or just not lied, I think mm -hmm. she would have had a different um course but basically the weird things that she did is and it's like the whole thing for me like laura albert i think they start to really believe their lies and mm -hmm. like rachel dolezal like would stop other white academics talking about race issues on the campus so that's like nervy you know what i mean like if you're another like white academic who you know is an ally or sympathetic and wants to talk about something she prevented that. And, I, you know, and quite honestly, I'm not really in academia. I'm really more of a hands-on production person, you know, so I think you guys are even over my head with your discussions <laughs> sometimes, to be perfectly honest. We'll but um, yeah, but um, I'm uh, but but I think that that's with like with Laura Albert, she did the same kind of doubling down when JT was, you know, outed by Stephen Beachy. She just like she rounded up supporters and their reputations to defend like I met JT, JT's existed, you know, she didn't like let go. And I mean, and is that like that's part of the pathology or that's like sociopathy? I mean, whatever you want to label it, 
it didn't do her any favors because she either believed her lies so much, which I think we do. I mean, I think it's like a defense mechanism. We believe our lies. And she doubled down and it just made it even harder and harder. And she never really took responsibility. I mean, later on with that documentary, that director convinced her for like public relations, you need to apologize. You need to say like, no, I can't exploit and manipulate everyone I come in contact with. That's not okay. You know, like, but she really just wasn't there for the longest time. Like she just, and it's, it's part of a pathology of whatever we want to call malignant narcissism, extreme sociopathy, whatever it is. It's like, it's about them. And that's the overlapping thing with our culture at large, right? Like that's the culture of the self, you know, and everything. And like when I would interview people, we'd be like, well, she was nice to me. And I'm like, well, what about the fact that she like, you know, frauded people, you know, exploited people, did this, that, or the next thing. And it's like, well, she was nice to me. So we really do live in this culture of um, just individual, you know, like an individually based culture. So, and so people were like, go girl, like go, go Laura, you know, like, and, and it was almost kind of repackaged as like a feminist thing. Oh yeah. And that definitely uh, dovetailed into the trans community as well. Um, in watching, I re in rewatching your documentary the other night, I actually saw a friend of mine in it. Oh, when she was doing the photo shoot with Stephen Jenkins from third eye blind. I used to live in third eye blinds room. So I, oh wow, <laughs> oh wow, with a few of the guys, not Stephen Jenkins. So my buddy was in there, and I and I wanted to call him up. I was very tempted to call him up and be like, "Hey, did Stephen fuck that dude?" Mm. <laughs> well, that, 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 those bed scenes are just so oh, so strange. weird. <laughs> just so weird. Also, he's straight. Like that's another person though, um, Pascal. That got like he's a straight guy who really got. He was saying that JT was his best friend, Stephen Jenkins. Yeah. His best friend, who doesn't exist, who is a completely different identity. So, so just to recap for people that see people in the chat, like I'm kind of confused. So, there's a woman named Laura Albert that creates a character named J.T. Leroy, and she wants to break into the writing world. She calls up the therapist and says that she's a 15-year-old uh, prostitute that is relocated and got dropped off in San Francisco and turning tricks in San Francisco. And the doctor says, you should write down your experiences. She starts writing down her experiences. And, and then I'll, I'll just jump in because we didn't even bring in the fact. And just to make it why it's not a pseudonym and where it's going a step further, she then enlists her sister-in-law like or sister-in-spirit because it's not legal to mm -hmm. act out the character in public and like sleep over Carrie Fisher's house to go here, do book readings, you name it. This this character who like is then – so it's like basically – She's taking that person and that person is walking around, you know, like so JT Leroy, like um, people like how why would you why would you doubt? Like, how do you know I'm even Marjorie Sturm? How do I know someone's Jason Miles? We just you know, it's a way we take for granted that people introduce themselves to you. We assume they are who they are. So when I met JT Leroy, this person in a wig who had this horrible upbringing, you've given a lot of rules to not do this, not do that. And you take for granted that this person actually is who they say they are. So that's something that just to throw out and, there. That's and, the and, the, and, the, and, the, and what I find really fascinating, and we see it here in the world we live in, and, and we're also seeing it more, as Marcus was talking about with people like Anna Delvey, it's the playing up of what you want to hear, right? So if you want to hear that I had uh, a rough life because of my drug addicted mother, in my inner city upbringing, you know, I, I'm going to double down 
on my rough life and my and my inner, inner city upbringing. And what she does, uh, uh, Laura Albert, the person that's pretending to be this JT Leroy character, which I find fascinating, is she contacts, she somehow gets a hold of the writers, which is probably a little easier to do than people think. They're writers, they're not actors, people. Well, this, um, I guess, dude, sorry, it was like, it's like where some of the people who are getting caught up in the fraud or the fake, mm-hmm. which, you know, like, also, too, is like, so, like, Laura, Laura Albert is, <laughs> is calling therapists as JT and then enlisting people to be JT physically in the real world. And then the therapist <laughs> is then saying, hey, this is spicy and it should be on the page. And, you know, like, I guess, you know, I don't know if we want to like, kind of like what, you know, they do like the next like, stage of like, how do, where do things start unraveling really? Because that's the, even, even when things come out that this is that, that Laura Albert is, you know, or JT doesn't exist. You do have these people who are like, you know, hell yeah, girl boss fraud is good. You know, this is fine, you know, and, and, but, uh, yeah, I guess where does the story go from there? Um, and yeah, how does, how does Laura and, and also too, like, like the other people who are like literally helping BJT, you know, how, oh, you mean how did, well, they, I mean, I think what's fascinating to me is that like war, um, Savannah Canute made her own, had wrote her own book and has her own movie with, um, Laura Dern in it and um stewart the other Kristen stewart right in it yeah and what i was i mentioned um to jason like in other countries if you were to do what they did you could go to jail but in our country you get a book deal and a movie and basically like she writes about and laura writes about um you know that they you know with the whole part with ozzy argento that's rape by deception. That's against the law. You know what I mean? To pretend to be someone else. Like it, it started actually with sometimes the FBI infiltrating leftist groups, you know, as police, like, you know, as activists. And that's, you can't just pretend to be someone and, you know, have a different identity and have sexual relations. It's called rape by deception. And, you know, it's no one, you realize no one cares on some level because it happened to Ozzy Argento or celebrities. People aren't really sympathetic to, you know, celebrities getting abused so much because it's sort of. And there was a kind of, of, there was, there was an aspect of this. And we talked about this on the phone call, which I found kind of fascinating. Again, your documentary if you watch them in succession, if you watch Laura Albert's documentary, you're going to have questions because it's nonlinear. It jumps all around to tell her story. Of, and she's not a reliable narrator. I mean, it's like oh. it's like talking to Trump about what's going on. It's like she's not she shouldn't be a source. And that's the thing I found is that everyone after this, to answer your question, Marcus, came to her as a source on this story and it's like ridiculous and that's when i first realized it's like holy cow like everyone's looking to her to explain this and she's just going to twist this and use the mystique as much as she could for herself you know and that's what she did as much as she possibly could you know and and what i found fascinating is the fact that when you brought up the ozzy argento story it's very different because laura albert tells a story of ozzy argento kind of being um just a Hollywood piece of crap that would do anything to get a movie made and, and writes to a deal. 
Um, that may be true because I feel like a lot of characters in this were, were lomping onto this person because once the JT Leroy character was um, put on a certain pedestal, literary pedestal of being the next important voice, all these artists that are trying to hang on to fame because also a lot of these guys are coming into the tail end. They're coming out with the, on the tail end of grunge and grunge is supposed to be this important music and these are supposed to be important people and have a lot to say. We're also coming off of the 92 election of Bill Clinton, where all these people were saying important things in this very apolitical era. So to right. be political is to write a story about a 15-year-old prostitute getting raped to smithereens in a truck stop in, in, in 1993, 94, 95. And so these guys clamoring onto this in any capacity is giving them the validity of what they've always wanted. Now I'm a character in a, in a Warhol story. Now I'm Lou right. Reed. <laughs> I'm this deep brooding individual, even though I'm just, you know, singing the same old songs and doing the same old. I, I, I really want to play off of that because that's something that really is important. And I'm glad that Jason touched on that because one of the things that I found frustrating with the documentary is watching all of these notable celebrities who are so sucked into this are trying to use it to to garner their own type of intellectual credibility, if you will. As in, you know, I'm a kind of like I'm a literary fly in the wall. You know, I've read JT. Like you know, I I was so moved. Oh my God! You know, this 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 the, the listen to this so the state the the wordcraft and the wordplay is so incredible. And it was so it was it was just so fake, you know. It was so transparently like performative. Mm -hmm. When you see like Rosario Dawson talking about how she was so moved to read, I'm like, you, 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 this is absurd, man. And, and that's um, yeah, totally. And that's where her brilliance say? What does it say about celebrity culture and its need? Like people use the term, a term that was often used, particularly in the uh, New Yorker article that Jason. Uh, that was uh, Warholian. That this is also Warholian because they're harking back to like this whole kind of like Warholian design, like Andy Warhol's desire to be like in the clique. But what does that say about the the, uh, the celebrity world? Yeah, I I'm so over War, Warhol personally. Like I feel like I can't watch any more on Warhol either like but i think it, it does come back to this like game of association that's what i was talking about jay like we um we try to people try to brand themselves by who they associate with right and so i do think on a certain level i mean most of these celebrities like sandra bernhardt or people they, they never met jt another time practically laura albert would reach out to their publishers get a book to them and then say we're having this big event would they read for this cause celeb so i mean this is what and so like what panio um giannopoulos the editor said it i do think for them it was functioning as a form of just like pleasurable altruism like, i don't think it was something they thought about that much it was like oh like i'm gonna go to this party and courtney love's gonna be there and this one and that's really how celebrity culture works right it's all about this like who's hot this association and laura really was able to um have her manipulate that pulse of american culture to her own end i mean that's where 
I think um, I think when like you know when I was making the film, people were were just kind of like scared of her almost, like they were spooked, you know, because she really did have a, a bizarre like like wicked kind of insight into like the machinations and the psychology. And the truth of the matter is, none of us are pure, and we do have multiple motivations. And artists are always hustling. And this is like, you know, the imprints kind of of our culture. So, I mean, she just took it and ran. It's, 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 it's incredible, really, when you think it's about just, it. To me, it's just an it's interesting, crazy. it's an incredible statement of the way in which capitalism, Absolutely. art, and, and creativity merge to create this kind of like shallow, shallow, parasitic symbiosis. Exactly. Everything is living off of each other just to try and the hustle. And, you know, you say it all the time. We talk about here the hustle culture, you know, the hustle element of, of the whole art form that people are reduced to. It just it just it's it's sad. And, and imagine trying to make a documentary and produce it on this topic and not do it like the way Hollywood wants you to. It was what to quote a friend of mine, just an exhausting amount of quote unquote mindfulness. I mean, like it was just like insane making the film. And I, that's a whole we won't I won't derail it there, but it was incredible, like the amount of bullshit that I experienced to just not like basically like to be able to have a just a real honest conversation about the topic and not be like go girl or like this is wow. like people wanted to think it was just purely funny and i there is a funny dark humor to it i think and i i'm not like i think that exists but it's also just kind of creepy and um particularly for the uh, the people that the young um you know street trans population that read the statement i mean that's that's back to co-optation or appropriation and all that and, and that's just inexcusable you know and reprehensible right up like straight up so it, i couldn't make a documentary that was going to just be like funny or something about this topic because i didn't think it was i mean if you just keep it on a celebrity level it could be funny maybe but um any if you scratch the surface it's, it's just it's, it's fascinating. Just pathological yeah yeah you know it's 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 fascinating because again I, I think we live in a world right now where there's a very thin line between hoax and market share exactly and, exactly. and i don't think people really understand that and so the, the conflation is very easy oh this person's a con artist and it's like are they a con artist or are they trying to to grasp a share of a market that's created, you know, in the world that we exist in right now in this podcast sphere. You said um, something that's so important, Jason, because you know the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was cryptocurrency and NFTs. Yes. You know, you know, hoax and market share. Exactly. Exactly. That was crazy, right? It's and still it, and going. It lasts, that's the thing too. It's like that. It's still going. It's still going on. Exactly. That's like it and, won't stop. You and know. what you say about this passive altruism that that people can have through JT Leroy, and it definitely or even is pleasurable, uh, pleasurable, pleasurable. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's definitely um something that is is part of a, a bourgeois liberal disability that I think yes. this really plays on. And I think one of the things that we talk about here is the idea of liberal democracy, and constantly you see people trying to reform liberal democracy but not really want to to tear it down or see any other way it's from a nicer way to do things you know you work with the unhoused in san francisco i worked with the unhoused uh, as 
as being one as well in 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 Oakland. And there's always someone that wants to a more humane way to, to get it out of my face. Can you just get it out of my face nicer? <laughs> you don't have to be so rough with arrest them, but please arrest them and get it out of my face in in a, in a nicer way. So this this kind of um, being able to read these books that just play into the stereotype exactly um, of well, what you think this world consists of. Well, here, well, that's you put your finger on it, and this is a, this isn't an original idea of mine, but I this is when I really also just realized, oh my gosh, how horrible is this really? Is basically when you realize that the trans community, and you can see this in Texas now, has been fighting the idea that you become trans because of child abuse. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So that is why, you know, child protective services have been taking children from their homes because this idea that you, that's how you end up trans. And then, you know, if Laura Albert actually was, you know, that was your true story and your parents did abuse you and you ended up trans, that's your story to tell. And we couldn't like, you know, that, that would be what it was. But if that is not your story to tell and you are just perpetuating one of the worst stereotypes that the trans community is pushing back on, that's really again reprehensible. It's it's it, it's not okay to say that like JT was became trans because the mother dressed him up at seven and the boyfriend, you know, raped yeah. him repeatedly. And that's and, and you know and we didn't really have as much analysis about that whole community. That that community was much more um, closeted at the time. So that didn't you know that wasn't really there wasn't much awareness on it. You know, Marcus. So anyway. Uh, well, and I, I kind of just had something that's like thinking about the, what we were talking about beforehand, um, kind of overall on, overall on the celebrity and stuff like that. And it kind of just reminded me a little bit of, um, uh, of pay, uh, art, you know, or like the, uh, high, you know, a high end art and stuff like that. Um, where, you know, you get like a banana duct tape to the right. wall sells for, you know, however many dollars abstract art high-end abstract art yeah and and even too i'm like in where um of uh and like jason might even go like maybe able to go a lot deeper in this with uh with music with indie music mm -hmm. and what does indie mean you know and it's like oh like every like all the indie artists like have parents who are you know producers or major record label like execs and stuff like that um it's, you know, so it's like this whole like facade, you know, like kayfabe and like where like all of these other things that kind of like play into this whole, I guess, this specific story just just working. And I think we yeah, like, that's what uh, you had said uh, before we'd started is like there are so many levels to kind of just dissect this thing that, you know, was the story of JT and, and what Laura did. Um so yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, no, I, mean, I was look, just like Marcus, thinking about like the I, I, high art and stuff like that. Of like, hey, yeah, this is all just like, it's all just BS, and there's no real analysis of you know, and, and especially too in JT's case of like the writing itself, um, and and that's where you get to of like, where's the analysis on how this is art, you know, like what, why is this beautiful? What you know, like why you know, and like well, what does it mean when other people can do the same thing easily? I've got duct tape. I've got bananas. I'm not rich. 
<laughs> well, well, Marcus, I told you I've played numerous noise shows where uh, there's some things I've seen in that world that were kind of interesting, but a lot of it was just people dicking around on a, a modular synth, which means you're just taking patch cables and putting them in holes, and you're getting a sound out of it. And I'm watching people sit down Indian style in a room going, oh, this is so cool. And I'm like, well, you can do it too. There's no method to it. It's not, he doesn't know or she doesn't know what they're doing. They're just literally plugging these things in the holes and someone told you it was important. Ergo, you think it's important. And I think that's kind of the the real through line of JT and all these other uh, hoaxes. Well, I was going to say, Marcus, on that note, too, what you said, like when her film came out, it premiered at Sundance that markets itself as an independent, you know, <laughs> film, you know, it's where you can premiere a film for independent films. And this is produced by A&E and Vice. And like, what does independent film mean when Sundance is promoting independent films that are, you know, produced by large corporations? Like, And, I, and, and it was also put in a, a selection of women, like notable women's films. And I forget, it was like these documentaries on these like amazing women. And then this was in that same category. And I, I just had such, my stomach just completely was like, this is crazy. Like, this is nuts. But um, yeah, well, and that's what I say in some of the, I was just like, so no one checked. And <laughs> which is like a fantastic question. Right. There's I'm no going fact to, checking. No fact yeah, checking. Well, and I want to kind of respond to with another question of like, what does checking mean when they've got yellow cake, they've got WMDs, and well, no one checked, well, that, that, or no that, one that, bothers to speak, well, you know, actually, well, you know. Well, that's the thing. Well, basically, like that works on a. Well, I mean, the books, whether they're good or not, I mean, that's why I left it open-handed. Like, if people want to read a book and they enjoy the books, like I could care less. Like, read a book. Like, read everything. You know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm all for reading, but like. The, the reality is the whole memoir industry doesn't have fact checkers. You know what I mean? Like, and now they do a little bit because now that I forget all the names, I could rattle them at one point, but we had the person in gangs in LA who actually their family outed her in one day. You know what I mean? Like they saw her in the New York times and in one day they were like, she wasn't, didn't grow up in gangs in LA. I forget the names of these characters, but like the interesting thing about Laura Albert's family is that, like the whole family, everyone kept it. Like, you know, they they went along with it for so many years. Like they didn't out her, too. Like people who could have outed her didn't. But you know, um, you know the books. You know, so if the books are good or whatever, there is. But then the journalists. It wasn't until Stephen Beachy really did the hard work. And when Stephen Beachy from the New York Magazine, when he, I spoke with him, it I felt like. Okay, Laura Albert wrote the books, but JT Leroy has to exist. I mean, I met him in person. I spoke to the doctors where he went through the clinic. Like, wow. how could this not add up? And he had a like really, he asked me so many questions. I was like, you're right, you're right, you're right. Like, it was just an overview. There is parent, like, she used patient um, confidentiality, you know, to her advantage. I mean, she really. You know, she's a, a, an intelligent woman who figured out this. It's almost like the Bernie Madoff of like the literary, <laughs> you know, literary hoaxes. I mean, it's really went on and on. 
But you know, when we think about like authenticity, because I think again, that's another through line, a theme of, of of this whole thing we're talking about here is authenticity. You know, Pascal, let's think about hip hop. Fifty Cent. Fifty Cent. All his marketing isn't the greatest producers in hip hop have made maybe the greatest record ever that has destroyed hip hop right. by having the gunshot be the snare. <laughs> so like, how black can it get? But what is 50 Cent's story for that second album that is so big? It's not the, the eight singles that come from it. It's he got shot nine times. Following the 50 Cent model, you then get an era of backstory rappers. Everybody has to have a backstory. What was Run DMC's right. backstory? These guys were rapping about going to college. They were literally rapping about going to university. So all of a sudden, not to say that one is better than the other, but it's just this change of I need authenticity. Ice Cube was bused to schools in the valley. He doesn't talk about going to school with all these white kids and <laughs> about all the drugs they did. Like that's not lyrics <laughs> that he talks about, right? <laughs> well, that's yeah. This, this authenticity Absolutely. is needed in hip hop to the point where when we talk about kayfabe playing out, what I want people to understand when I talk about kayfabe playing out is the fact that you start to be a true believer in it and live it. Now you have these young men, sadly, I get too many DJ Vlad emails and I won't tell you why I get DJ Vlad emails. It's a whole other show. But rappers dying, they're not famous. This isn't Pac and Biggie because again, terrestrial radio, MTV, all that's gone. But still, these young men are dying over authenticity. They're going to prison now over authenticity. The district attorney in Atlanta said, I am looking at RICO charges for rappers because of authenticity. And that's what this woman sold. Totally. Like you have to be a heroin addict to be an independent, yeah. like, a, like an indie grunge musician, right? Like you have to, like, you have to have your like drug addiction and, and get over it, right? To have, so I mean, so people who maybe, you know, didn't have anything, like you always can use heroin, right? Like that's really, I mean, that's real, isn't it? It's like, and then people perform it. It's like everyone sort of knows like, oh, this is my, my, you know, angle. This is like, and we all have to kind of, I mean, that's the era, unfortunately too, right? Of like promoting and branding and the whole, the number, right? Just to, and yeah, I mean, I haven't read him in a while, but I didn't like Theodore Derno back to the academic stuff. I think he uh -oh. discusses. Um, uh oh, this is a this is a, a, a Frank, Frank school. school show here, Marjorie. <laughs> well, I, I, we don't have to go there because I, I can't really speak with any. I read the book a while ago when I was working on this, and I was like, oh wow, you know. But there's also like the situationists, you know, where people. That's what I thought also overlapped on a theoretical level with the situations with people. Like, what is reality, right? Like, you know, just being photographed becomes reality now. And like all, I mean, and that's what, um, again, Laura Albert was really, you know, it's hard to give me, to give her a compliment and say it was brilliant. Cause like, I don't think manipulation is brilliant. Like, I'm not a big fan of manipulation as a tactic, but like everything was documented. Everything was photographed, you know? So, you know, there it is, like, you know, who, you know, if everything, that's, that's how it goes, you know, that that's what the proof is that exists. One of the things, oh, sorry. No, no go ahead. One of the things that I found so weird about this documentary and the story, really, is that 
it wasn't until, well, I don't know if I'm giving up anything, but towards the end, you do have people who say the writing was trash. The writing <laughs> was not even good. So I wonder if this has something to do with how people are taking in modern art. Oh, my seven-year-old kid can draw that. My seven-year-old oh, yeah. kid can paint that kind of thing. And maybe looking for authenticity and truth as a kind of anchor in the middle of all that, because they don't seem to have criteria for art. It's just like, someone told me this was art. And so it is. And I can either say I hate it or I love it. Right. And then, and, and that, well, I'll just say that those are the blurbs, right? Like every book we get, we get like, what, 20 blurbs now of people. And that's, it's like the blurb game. And there actually is a good documentary called My Kid Could Paint That. And it's about yes. a hoax. Did you, I don't, I'll just yes, throw that Jackson out there. Yeah. yeah, that was, that was also pretty good. I mean, I, I like that one because it, it hits on the same like thing. No, I, I don't think people, um, well, we don't learn it, you know, too, in schools, we don't really learn to be critical thinkers or, I mean, you know, the, the, the bottom line is art is subjective. I mean, it's, it's truly, truly subjective and we act as if it's not. I mean, there is, you know, some things that are quality that maybe appeal to more people and that's um, where it's good or it communicates the way it's supposed to and that's what makes it good. But generally speaking, I mean, I had to sit through, you know, I have a graduate degree in film and I had to sit through so many horrible films by white men. I mean, I just sat through like and I, I feel like it damaged me. I literally think it psychologically fucking damaged me and my psyche. And the only time you saw a woman was if she was in the kitchen with like a mother as a mother with her kids or as a beauty interest and like i sat through film history and we didn't see one film by a woman in san francisco this is my education film history and then i think we had like maybe one here and then and i i, I still i have to stop when we like show birth of the nation with griffith like and just explain this is a racist film i mean like this is not like well, I'm not even talking. It's like long time ago. This is my education. So that's where it's creepy. It's yeah. The the whole the whole uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's damaging. Like I'm so I sat well, through so much, and it was great you know, art. You mentioned art. It's, it's you mentioned the, Theodore Adorno, and you know the culture industry is something that we talk about on this show a lot. We we talk about Adorno. Uh, the Frankfurt School and the role in which pop culture plays, particular, particularly film, television, even music, in reifying the hierarchies that are normative in American capitalism. Exactly. And, and, and you know, One Dimensional Man and all of those works that come out of that school of art that talk about how the ideological superstructure of American capitalism is actually also permeated through popular culture to maintain the normalcy of the system. And I think it's a very important analysis. And you see that in this stale kind of monochromatic notion of what is film and what is art that you were talking about, you studied in film school, where everyone, you know, this whole kind of like dramatic renderings of like American normative masculinity and patriarchy, which are only created after World War II and the New Deal anyway, by the way, because it's not like the American family structure was a static thing that existed throughout time. It was changing with the political economy of society as well. But because everyone, because in the 50s, everyone's buying this Ozzy and Harriet narrative 
of what family is, we buy into this kind of very stale kind of because it's very anti-communist, right? It's right, it's a very anti-communist notion, and the suburbs have to have to be created. You, you know, the idea of also like being anti-art. Uh, sadly comes up in this, especially like we're talking high art. Um, and there was a, there's a pretty big right wing YouTuber, Marcus, you know who this guy is, Paul something? Is it Paul Watson or something like that? Is that his name? Not Paul Watson. Oh, What's his name, Paul, MT? Mol- Molyneux? No, no uh, he's British. Paul. Who is it, MT? Um, let me think. Stephon. Anyway, he had a, he has a very, very famous video where he's shitting on modern art. And one of the things he talks about is one of the uh, Paul Joseph Watson. Thank you, Sasha. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, 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 there, yeah. There literally was a modern art piece where someone put feces in cans. There was right. literally a modern art piece where someone had kind of a, it would look like a messy bed. Um, but to just show the messy bed and go, this mother, F, this MFR said this is art. This is the world we live in. You know, you're kind of discounting what art looked like even during Basquiat's era of minimalism you know he the reason why he was so popular and kind of his crew was because this is an era of like black canvases with one white dot you know it's it's a very minimalist era and that's what high art looked like so when these very colorful canvases were coming out that he was doing it was it was eye-catching for the warhols of the world to see whether or not you think basquiat is is a great figure you know, we're not going to get into that conversation because that would take us into another hour. And I have good friends that would yell at me if I discounted his greatness. But, I like uh, him. <laughs> <laughs> I've, right. seen of, I've seen a bunch of documentaries. I, I, I actually just really like his art. You know, I mean, I genuinely back to the subjectivity of it. I res, like his art. I respond to. So, I mean, maybe I'm supposed to. I, you guys probably know a lot more about it. Well, no, and this, I guess, though, like, like where it gets is like the simple thing of like in being subjective is what is the value of the original what's the value of someone painting a copy of it right every stroke for stroke or what's you know versus you you know getting a detailed hd of it uh printed or you just you know print a jpeg off of the inkjet and that's where it's it's We're disconnected from this deep thought to the point where the art galleries, I take my little kid, I'm sorry, Pascal, I take my my little kid who's three, and we walk in into the art galleries in the city, and not far from where you've been for years in the Tenderloin, right? We walk around, and sometimes they're nice to us because they see the little kid, and they'll take us into the rooms with the Picassos that they have hidden away. This is even in Martin Lawrence galleries and stuff like that. They know I don't have any fucking money, and but they just I think they're bored or whatever. And I, and I let my my kid take in art for whatever it is for him at three four years old, right? Just let's just look at some stuff and hang out. And it's interesting that they take us on and they explain the pieces to us and everything. So he's getting this free art education. From the art galleries. And we're so disconnected from this because they're telling me constantly that people come in and they have to remind them, please don't take pictures of that. Because people want to take a picture of it. A, to prove they were there. That's another problem we talked about, Marcus, on our Woodstock show. And then there are people in this world that take pictures of that shit and then get it printed and put it up in their house. This shit's it's so disposable. But why should wait? That's either like, why not? Why not? You know, like, 
And that's, you, you want know, art to be disposable? No, but that thing is, is someone taking a picture of it and then putting it up on their wall. Is that mm-hmm. disposing of it? Yes. How? You don't care. You're diminishing the they rarity of the, of the work products. Yeah. You're diminishing the rarity of the work product. Yes, but that's the thing is that the rarity has really nothing to do with the actual, I guess, like the value of the art, which is like the actual shareability. You know, what? how is this spread? How many people actually enjoy this? How many people actually want to take this and put it on their wall? Because that's the thing, too, is like that person probably would like an original or, you know, a very detailed copy. But all they can get is seeing it one time and hopefully snapping a picture of it or maybe no, just downloading it. Look at it like music. Like, are they doing a selfie of it, or are they just taking a picture of the picture? Both. Or the painting. But still, it, look at it like music. As music is becoming more ubiquitous, it has lost its value. No one cares. It's free. I don't care what you say. I don't even want to hear what you say. Why do no. you think the TikTok TikTokification of music is where people make money? Why do you think sound? If you want to make money in music, it's not about being an artist. It's about creating sound libraries and selling five hours of music to a motion picture company. That's where the money is made. I still get uh, emails daily about, hey, we're looking for a song that sounds like a '50s version of this. We only need 30 seconds. That is really where the money is made. Well, yes. So there is no value that's, in it. The, but that's I've easy. devalued it by giving it out for free to everyone. Musicians so are still making songs. It? Artists are still making songs. And I do have a question, uh, so Dr. Sturm, then. People are still painting pictures. Exactly, right? So how much is it devalued? If you're making a, a documentary, right? Do you really want to wait? Time out. Do you really <laughs> want to say just because someone does it, it's devalued? Is that really what you want? It's not devalued because people do it? That's what you're saying? It exists, no, um, therefore, that it's not devalued? Do you really want to get into how revenues are different over the devaluation of music? We could Does argue. Do have that discussion right now? No, when uh, yeah, wait, I sound like a cranky old man. Your mom's a cranky argue. old man. You so sound like you, you, you sound like a cranky old businessman. Because when you talk about revenues, you're not really talking about at least you know I don't think you're really talking about why would an art artist create art versus maybe why would someone scam art why would someone do a fraud and fake art and so i guess you know the question too of like devaluing well marcus now you're coming into a kind of existential question about concepts like copyright and trademark is there any value in having things like that i mean if you want to talk about from an anti-capitalist marxist kind of communist socialist point of view is like why are we copywriting or trademarking things that may be replicated and have value to other people if we paid for it one time why do we have to trademark it and copyright it that's a philosophical question that you can have if you want to have that question but all i'm saying is that within the paradigms and i there is an argument to be had that if we want to envision a new society in which we change these hierarchical value systems that we find to be damaging that we maybe have to interrogate whether or not we believe in having a kind of trademark or copyright worldview on our productive capacity. That's an argument that's willing to be had. I mean, that was the but whole fan fiction discussion that Stefan we were having the other day. But at the same time, you don't you don't change that gear when you're already in a paradigm 
where people are creating create artistic work products trying to live their lives subsidizing their lives doing so and people are not respecting their because capacity. what marcus doesn't understand pascal no, is easy, that, easy let easy. me hold on no hold no because no. we, 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 you know, i just don't i don't marcus appreciate the, on, what let, me marcus does. let me say this what you don't understand is that first and foremost the people that control how music comes out then controls how music ends up sounding and there's a reason why we live in the jinglefication, TikTok dance step era of music right now. Because that's where the money is. And if you don't understand that, then what are you really saying? That's extremely important, especially also when we talk about art. But taking a photo of a Picasso in an art gallery, I mean, those people, like, there's not, I mean... In that way, it's the kind of the inverse there, because it's like they're going to be making millions eventually from somebody on that painting. You know what I mean? And they, they're already part of the hype. So if someone wants to take a photo and put it up, I mean, that seems to me a little kind of, I, I mean, I, I think Marcus's point, I can see it with that point, you know, in that context. Like if someone takes a photo of the Picasso that's already selling for millions or something, it's different than the music in a sense. Do you see what I mean? Well, I mean, I have friends uh, that are Jackson Street artists in New Orleans, and that's literally how they pay their rent. And when people go by and take a picture of their art and then they blow it up on their wall and don't yeah. know, pay them, that definitely affects their bottom line. So yeah. I always see it from the from the standpoint of it's hard for artists in a world where art is disposable, where there is no value you've put on it to make money so but there's I, always this talk about artists need to make money and blah 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 but then when you have this conversation about disposable art then all of a sudden it's okay for art to be disposable and the whole conversation would change i mean if the united states was actually to fund artists you know mm -hmm. the way we do in europe or mm -hmm. mexico yes. I, mean, I think this country of mexico funds more artists like and like my um partner is a sound artist and the people he plays with in europe you know, they go there, they're paid a monthly salary by the government. And then here he has to work, you know, at the public library 20 hours a week in order for us to survive, you know what I mean? And it's just a shame that we, like, all of our art has to be forced into this capitalist model. Yeah, that, that's, that's an alternative that I would like to have a conversation about than having to render a situation where the artist is dependent on the market to subsidize exactly. the lifestyle. It's I mean, ridiculous. we did that at one point in this country, right? We funded yeah. art. We funded high art in this country, yeah. and we tried to put high art into the hinterlands of this country during the New Deal. That's why you have the architecture you have and some of the uh, the, the sculpture that you have in places like North Dakota. Did Marcus take off? <laughs> yeah, he's mad at me. Is he? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Oh, okay. In Canada, you can have your rap video um, partially paid for by the Canadian government. They'll yeah. pay for your music tour. We uh, we hosted uh, yeah. a friend of ours that actually has a venue in Canada that's a community venue um, in Toronto. And when her and her, her uh, partner came out and needed a show in Oakland, we hosted it at the studio. And... Um, I went to give her money because we pulled money at the end of the night. And I was like, well, here's money, you know, because they we, they had did the same thing for us when we were on tour out there. And she was like, oh, no, don't worry about it. They, they gave us a, a grip to do this tour. 
Like they funded it. And I was like, that's a whole different level of, uh, of being able to do what you want to do, how you want to do it without the confines of the market dictating how you do it. And I think that's where I was getting frustrated with the conversation because when you don't understand how the dictates of the market dictate what you hear to just flippantly say, well, music still gets made, ergo, there's no problem. It's like, well, what music gets made? Why are all the top 10 songs in this country less than three minutes long? Right. Oh, no, totally. And then that's basically the same with the documentary, like the, the, the dominant production values. Like everyone, I mean, on one level, it is exciting that, you know, it's been democratized making films in the last, you know, let's say 10, 15 years in a way that people can with Adobe Premiere, Final Cut Pro, and even like an iPhone and, you know, and the audio equipment, it doesn't take that money, much money, money actually to make them the way it did. And that's mm-hmm. good, but it still takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to right. do it. And then, so like for me with making this film, it's like I had the skills to make the film but like you still need to live and exist and you can just feel that there's just this like wicked like paranoia like i felt like i was just obviously this wild card coming out of san francisco because no one really cared about me i happened to have started the film and got hoaxed so i had this like treasure chest of footage that people wanted but they weren't really particularly interested necessarily in my point of view or vision but um there was just so much paranoia about like what the production values would be, what it would look like and so forth. And so I was actually working with A&E at one point. My film was greenlighted for whatever budget it took. And then the, the it crashed, the economy crashed and they put my film on hold. And so I was like literally in shock when I got like an email from Vice that A&E was now making a film with this other male director from LA who like they obviously didn't care at all about you know the point of view or what was the expression behind it it was just like oh we're gonna just go and put our money in this film now because you know it's gonna have the bells and whistles Mm -hmm. and all the um machination around it you know all Mm -hmm. this and so i and i wrote like the woman who had been interacting with at A&E, I go, is this for real? Are you now like sponsoring this opposite, like literally the inverse of what I was doing? You're about to, and and she's like, oh yes, we hope that we can option your footage, your wonderful footage. And I said, and I just said, yeah, well, uh, I'll keep you in mind on my talk. I kind of just repeated back to what um, her original email was. Like they, I'll put it on hold. I'm on my own timeline. Perfect example. Because we have these, talks with different artists and filmmakers you know we had another documentary filmmaker on who made a fascinating documentary about um the future of our boomer population as they're getting manipulated into the caregiver uh what's what's it what's it called britney spears just had it what is it called mt oh conservatorship yeah um and he made a great documentary called the guardians and he was trying to also make a feature film and those notes got optioned into a different film that wasn't necessarily his story that ends up being a very pro-capitalist film which wasn't necessarily his goal when he was telling his original story and the idea that he had 
um, for this for his film. And there's a lot of stories in Hollywood um, where where these types of things happen. And and I don't think the average person knows the behind the scenes how the sausage is made when it comes to stuff like this. It was incredible. It was literally. Um, yeah, were you going to say something, Pascal? Well, I was going to say that what you're explaining is a very perfect example of how the interface of the market with the creative process limits the options that the creator or the artist has in terms of even displaying or how their work is segmented, how their work is taken apart. And these are considerations that, again, for those of us who are trying to envision a new society, I think that we really have to broaden our horizons in terms of trying to discuss what does it look like to live in a world where capitalism is not the defining edict upon which creativity is actually directed, but we can have ways of alternatively subsidizing the creative process where not only maybe not just government, but cooperative economic models or some type of paradigm, where we don't have to depend on pure for-profit paradigms to, to, to subsidize creation. And I think it's something that's worth investigating because so much of what we do when we challenge capitalism is based on reacting to the system or reacting to the harms of capitalism, the problems of capitalism. But so little of it is proactively about creating a model that is something that actually is workable, that we can find a way to actually change the existing paradigm something feasible for people to actually live with and work with. I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we need to spend more time doing. Well, like the Patreon model actually is pretty good on that level, right? Like, um, yeah, but I agree, like, you know, but it's just, it's just, it's a lot of, yeah, it's a lot of work, you know what I mean? That's, and then, and that's where like, um, you know, just a lot of discussions around healing and all this stuff that's very in, individualistic, it doesn't always take in mind, like, the sociopaths, the people who are willing to exploit or go over the edge for their own needs. I mean, that's what I feel like was my big, um, one of my big, I mean, I, I worked again with mental illness and the unhoused and so forth. And it was a really benign, nice group of people that I worked with. So when I went into trying to produce this film, I really wasn't prepared for the amount of just blatant self-servingness. Like people are so willing to um, just be what's best for me, like and not thinking about, you know, mutuality or what's, you know, what, what you're talking about. It was, it's definitely not. And I mean, that was my, um, and that's why the film took me so long to make basically. Cause I got I, one thing after another, like that example was occurring and it was just, it was really, I mean, and, you know, and I needed to live too, and I had young kids, and it was the economy. So it's it's a hard one when um, you're offered a lot of money to be like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm I'm going to turn this down. And actually, I, because well, what's the point after a while? What's the point of working so hard to make something that doesn't communicate what you're trying to say, just for your name or your career? And that's what they're banking on. Like another, I'll give you another example. I, I shot the whole film. I hired an editor. Mm -hmm. And then this editor, I won't even, I won't name him, but he's a big editor. He's worked with a major um, director, edited a lot of films, a lot more experience than me. He decides he wants to co-direct my film. This is after it's been greenlighted and I hired him. He wants to co-direct it. And that's when I was like, no, um, you're not co-directing 
the film. I hired you as the editor. And he was like, well, I want to get into directing. And it's like, well, pick a topic, raise the money, shoot it, you know, <laughs> and, you know, direct your film. You know, this is, but it was just so much, but that's when uh, A&E dropped me first because he was part of the package and he wanted mm. to co-direct it, you know? So that's right. when it, they first dropped it. Cause you know, and I asked them straight, I go, has this happened to your male directors? Do you drop your male directors when their editors want to suddenly co-direct? And then they came back. That's what I'm saying. Then they came back to me, gave me two producers in LA. I met with them, flew there, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is just like, you know, you know, it was just incredible. And then that that's when the economy and they put it on hold, but I had had many conversations. I mean, they, we had been working on contracts, the whole thing, you know, and then they went and funded the opposite thing. But, but does, doesn't that kind of play into also what we're talking about with the whole JT thing, which is right. like um, when you have a certain access, like um, I had a very prominent artist do a remix for us. And because of that, um, deals were worked out with PR companies that had to review my album now because it featured this artist on there that they wouldn't have had before that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have access to these, these large publications right. before had this, had this person not been a part of it. Like that's part of the, the, the game. That oh, totally. Or Albert kind of mastered, you know, bringing well, it back to the JT Leroy thing. Executive produced. Like every time you see executive produced on a documentary, that person might be doing nothing other than putting their name, like the blurb, executive produced. So it's, again, it's a whole game of branding and association. And that's where like, you can make your whole film, bring in a producer, and that's how you get into Sundance. Sundance, like the number, that that's a fraud. I mean, that Sundance is a fraud where the number of $25 or more fees they're taking and how many of the films are getting in because of the sales agent and the producer. I mean, that's the statistics we need. And I would I would bet it's 95. You know, I mean, the number of films that are being picked because they're just, you know, such great, you know, films that rose to the top, you know, and they do this year after year after year after year. And it's because they're, you know, hosting parties and, you know, that's the same thing. And then, you know, even the documentary, which you uh, hold the documentary industry, which has got to be one of the most righteous and pure industries within capitalism, I would say. I mean, it's like, you know, a lot of you know, geeky people, their parties at all of the things are still being funded by, you know, HBO and A&E. And it's all the same thing. You know, it's even Foundation, like, Foundation yeah, World. it's the same. It's the same thing like going on. And that's all going back to we don't have funding from our government. You know, what I mean, this is where we're at, you know, so and, and, you can't like these little nonprofits that are doing their festivals, they need to pay their salaries. I mean, so it just you can't really um, hate on everyone, but it's it's doesn't make for a good art world. And it goes back to my initial point, which is just because stuff is created, you can't belittle what's influencing the creation. And if I understand that I want to make money doing music, that's why I'm putting it out. I wouldn't put it out if I didn't want to make money on it, right? Um, it has to sound a certain way. <laughs> it has to fit in a certain box. And th these things influence uh, your creations, if, if it will. Even movies. 
uh, the gentleman that made was a Todd Phillips that made the Joker. He's not a fan of superhero movies, but he wanted to do a movie on neoliberalism, and he felt the only way he could get one bought is if he put it in a superhero context. So you get the Joker. That's out of his mouth. That's what he says. So, again, the market dictates more than you would like the art that's created. Big time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I just think that um, and then that in turn, like, obviously, just, you know, allows everyone to think what is what is, you know, th those dominant, you know, artistic values that becomes the setup for what people value is good or bad and how they judge it. They're just not even used to being exposed to something different, you know, as well. So that, and then their reaction, you know, is you know, has its own biases from the beginning because they're just not used to it. Yeah. MT, did you have something you wanted to add? Well, uh, I kind of just want to say, I think that um, picking up on Pascal's point about what is art going to look like outside of capitalism, I just want to remind us all that we can look at what art was like before capitalism. Uh, there is a before capitalism. It is not, you know every time, every era, all the time. Um, and I think that, that the art will change if we can move from consumers to citizens. And if that process is socialism, um, then so be it. We need to just make sure to have that as an aim and as a goal. People need to know what art is for. They need, they need to know what art is and what it's for. It is to illuminate the human experience. And I think people lose track of that they make things that are just stuff um, and stuff is stuff and art is art. They're not the same. You know, what's just really important about important, well, what's important about you saying this MT uh, and I said this seriously is that you are someone who invested at least eight years of your life in high quality artistic education. Mm -hmm. You know, she mm -hmm. MT went to, you know, fashion school yeah. performing arts in New York and also went to, I think like a, a fashion technological school for undergraduates. So it's really, I think that your words here uh, have significant import. Thank you. Yeah, well, I will say that in watching this documentary, it did take me back to high school. Um, that's kind of the era, but also it, I went to the fame school, the school that fame was written about. And um, oh, yeah, wow. I, I recognize the characters. I recognize some of these people. I look at some of these actors that we were looking to to have better standards for art, and I can see um, some of the people that I went to school with. Their boundaries for certain things are porous, and they're not always entirely in control of what they're taking in and what they're giving out. They're also looking to make more art and sometimes they just don't have enough inside and they will steal feelings. Right, right. Mm. So there's well, yeah. an idea of stealing something from JT as well. Well, and also like, I mean, a lot of them did come from like, even like Lou Reed or whoever, like they were addicts, they were, that they had, and I think they wanted to get close to JT almost to kind of, you know, restart their pain or just like remind themselves of that error to kind of juice off it. But you're right, they can steal 
feelings or just, you know, try to get back at that original, like, thing that inspired them or so forth. I mean, it really was for me, like, I remember thinking, like, it just seemed like this little Rimbaud character, like, people were like, oh, you know, it, it was almost, it did have, like, almost, it was too good to be true energy. And everyone, I mean, but it was like, Gus, um, John Waters, you know, it was Tom Waits. It's it was people who had a jaded reputation. That's what was really interesting too. It wasn't even just, um, you know, normal when we think of celebrities. When we think of people who are just not, you know, the deepest and darkest. This was like a deep. Then that's what's kind of fascinating is that so many intelligent people got hoaxed. You know. That that is a real sticking point for me. I am still trying to figure out exactly what made that what made it so palpable to people that they wanted to to uh, participate um, in this in this lie. Another thing that reminded me of high school in uh, in the documentary was um, when I was in high school, I wanted to write a novel, some great novel, some great American novel having not even read a lot of great American novels at the time. Um, but I know that there was this writer, uh, a young adult writer, her name was S.E. Hinton. Um, and at 16, she wrote The Outsiders, an incredible book. She wrote that in 1910. And I wanted to be so much like her. And I wanted to write some amazing book as a teenager. For me to have idolized her and even try to write. And then to find out towards the end of the documentary that JT wasn't even a good writer. Just really, I think it's the kind of anger you get when you're an artist and you try to make something. And then you see somebody who did not try to make something and they are getting, it's not that I wanted fame and all of this other stuff, but you know, maybe there are people who do. They feel that that's what comes with making good art and they should have it too. So yeah, kind of infuriating. Not just fascinating, but infuriating also. No, no, it's definitely like angering too. I mean, like I, I felt that way, and I, I mean, I've gotten over it now. But like when that uh, this other documentary was being produced, with like millions of dollars just being like handed over to them, you know, probably like editors and assistant editors and people, you know, archivists and. You know, and I had to do like everything pretty much by myself. You can't help but just be like, wow, like this is like incredible. And that they don't even care. Again, it's back to the fact checking. You know what I mean? Like, is that doc, if someone who is a pathological liar is speaking for two hours, is that being fact checked? No. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's just, it's not really a documentary. It's more like a memoir piece of her story. Yeah. But it's, it's so it was, it was definitely just, um, you know, quite the quote-unquote learning experience, <laughs> you know, angering is right, you know, you're just like, yeah, I mean, and that's, I think a lot of writers, that's where War Albert would just turn it around and say, Stephen Beachy and all these people were jealous, they were jealous of JT's wow. success and fame, and so that's how, like, it was always diffused, and it wasn't, like, so in any legit criticism or back to the fact-checking, it was jealousy. Like Stephen Beachy was just like a jealous writer. Wow. Incredible. I know. That's, that's interesting. That takes me back to Pascal's earlier point about how some of the older men in the documentary that became friends with JT 
seem to want to have sex with him. And so it seems like there's just a space that opened up that was incredibly complex and a lot of feelings were involved in there. Well, that's basically what it boils down to. You nailed it. She was by and large someone who manipulated on a very intense emotional level. You know, she like um, my partner once said, like, if you walked up to someone and, you know, took out a gun and said, like, give me all your money. That's one kind of thing. And in this case, it was like, oh, I'm X, Y, Z. I'm like a homeless. I'm suicidal. I'm this, that and next. So give me your time, your energy, your resources. And that's how the con worked. You know, like, like, like someone in the documentary said, she never said, give me this always directly, but she embroiled you so much. And she made everyone feel like they were special. Um, and I think, and, and I think this goes for a lot of places in my life, because I was making the documentary, I was sort of protected because I mean, coming from sort of a case manager, social work background, I think I could have been manipulated a lot more than I was. But in this case, she treated me like, like I was the media and I was a journalist and it created a great divide, which was in my, and it ended up being in my favor and I ended up like taking something from these takers. Like I had this footage like that was, and it, it was a big mistake of hers. Like she shouldn't have had me documenting. Like she just kind of, I don't, she just was sort of letting me document. And um, that was a mistake of hers that ended Sometimes up. That's the ego, yeah. They do make mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They get away with so much. But she tried to, like, she tried to stop the documentary I got like, like, I can't, I lost count of the number of letters from different lawyers. And then when it premiered, really? yeah, it premiered at Doc New York City, she sent, uh, her lawyer sent a letter to everyone on the documentary, Doc New York City's like panel, you know, like they're, the people who run it were all threatened if they screened it. And um, she did this, she followed me around different festivals, just trying to harass um different festivals but you know i was telling jason back to what we were talking about the only reason my film could screen is if i i got e and o insurance so basically every documentary that you watch has to pay and depending if there's lawsuits involved it's more or less expensive so we say we have a first amendment right to freedom of speech but no one could screen my film unless i pay ten or twelve thousand dollars for E and O insurance. Errors and omissions and omissions. Yes. So that is like really crazy because I mean I happen to have people who were backing me who paid it at the last minute, right before the festival premiered. And that's why the whole film got out to the public. But if I couldn't have rounded up that, she might have felt like emboldened and successful and I might even more not gotten a chance to have my errors and omissions insurance. And the film, after years of work, just never would have been seen. She is I know. <laughs> yeah. technical term. Not and it's, like, and it's, it's basically, you know, and I said to her, you know, you make your film, I'll make my film. Yeah. And, you know, like, you know, we have a right to freedom of speech. I mean, she's she's someone who had a right to like, what, three, four different personas. And I don't have a right to express myself. You know, she's that it was just incredible. So, yeah, it was a really uh, crazy experience. You was interfering way. with the mo- you was you was interfering with the money stream. You can't do that, right? Yeah. That also I mean, shows that your your documentary was a threat to the hustle. 
you big time. You basically were shattering the con game that was exactly. letting this, this go about and really were ringing the alarm in a way that jeopardized her whole kind of self-aggrandizement scheme. Exactly. And that's why I couldn't just make the opposite film. I mean, HBO wanted me to collaborate with her. You know, like, what? Yeah, and, yeah, and that's but, when hey, I was you, like, you know, again to the point of how markets and money change everything. How much different financially would that have been for you had HBO and you collaborated with Laura Albert? You know, I have to say that the, the the reality is, I don't think it would even make a difference that much in my life. I mean, I wasn't. I mean, I I it would have. It was, it's so after the fact because I already put so much labor in. I mean, you're probably being paid like three cents an hour in the end. You know what I mean? It's like so crazy. But like they just pay you a director rate. You don't own the copyright. Like I own the copyright. Really? Yeah. The, you you just you end up same with A and E. They probably own the copyright. Would it, you know would what it I mean? have changed? Would it have changed where you sat on a hierarchy of important female voices in directing? I think it might have. That would have been what I could have like capitalized i probably still could have capitalized on that more but i honestly i feel like i had like ptsd from the experience like i think it, again to make a film and make a feature film it really has to come from within to do it and push for it and after making this and just having so many trials like i have been working on other projects but like i didn't have it even in me like i see how they hustle like i see what people do to make do documentaries for netflix they're doing like a 40, 50 interviews in a month. Like I have two kids. That's just not my lifestyle to do 30 or 40 like interviews in a month. Like there's a timeline. They have you jumping. You know what I mean? It's all about the turnaround. They're pushing films through and they're not done over time. And actually the best documentaries, I think, are usually done over time where you really watch a story unfold. And, um, you know, usually generally they are, a lot of them. But when they're being pumped out, um, you know, it's just not that it wasn't really what I wanted to do anyway, you know, because I, I had all the contacts. The film won a lot of awards. It did really it did better than I could have imagined, quite frankly. And so um, and I was thankful for that. You know what I mean? I was really, really thankful because it was such a hard ride. You know what I mean? Well, well Marjorie, not to shameless plug, <laughs> my good friend and partner, Jason Miles here. Oh, this is revolution. But we make a pretty damn good video essay. I must tell you. I want to check them out. I thought it was just something for this. I thought you were showing a video um, mm -hmm. essay, a video essay for something. I didn't you make quite... a pretty good video essay. They're about 15 minutes to a half hour long. They cover particular issues of history and politics that we'd like to talk about on the show. And if you get a chance to check any of them out, we would love to hear your feedback because cool. you, def you definitely made an impact with your, with your documentary thus far. And we'd like to hear your expert opinion. I would, I would love to watch. I mean, I mean, that's great. I mean, video essays are really interesting, I think, in general, as a genre. Like, that's a really cool um, thing to tap into that not a lot of people are tapping into, I don't think. I don't think there's as many people doing it. Not with yeah. a certain level of, I mean, there's some people that are doing some really good work, but there's a certain level of, um, I think we all agree, you know, background research you have to do into this kind of stuff. Right. Let's go. I hate JT Leroy or I don't dig this lady and then start doing your work. I mean, there's, there's interviews you have to do. There's a lot of background reading you have to do. Um, so yeah, I'm sure I'm, I'm at, I'm sure you it, really... it's, it's 
trying to get them out every month to your point early month, you know mass producing everything is going to you know i felt was watering down the product so i actually stopped doing it for a while. every month yeah that's a lot yeah it's it's time consuming well it's just there's there's the actual creation, but also just the way a story unfolds. Like, I think someone was asking, like, where, I think Marcus asked, like, where it was going. And that's really always the question, like, like, does the story ever end, right? Like, you can, you can, yeah. keep, you can keep following things forever, you know? Um, oh, I guess we have a, we have a question for you, Marjorie, that you want to say this in Tucson? Sure. Of- Sure, I'll read it. Um, so we have a question from Jessica Sanlu. Uh, question for Marjorie. You said in the documentary that at one point JT said you couldn't film anymore because someone recognized him or her in person. Did you have did you have to sign anything to film initially? That's a that's a good question. Um, no, and that's actually kind of what broke up our relationship in a sense. It was part of it, like. There was um, one of my only like part phone conversations when I was brought in to um, make the film. I was um, filming and I, I didn't even hadn't even talked to a lawyer. And then I did, and they said, "Oh, you should get something signed," but it doesn't matter because he's a public figure. You know, he's a celebrity, and public right. figures and celebrities you don't really need anything to be signed. And that was the kind of thing that the Laura Albert was saying she didn't sign it, but they again they were public figures. She's put it all out there. She's put it out there over and over again, her story, you know, in so many different ways, like her personal story too, that um you don't have to to get anything signed. And I didn't initially, yeah, so I didn't um but that was um when that after that person on my the Napa Valley shoot where I went for the New York Times ran into JT that was a really weird thing because that was one of the things um Laura Albert was careful she said that if you saw JT Leroy in public you weren't supposed to acknowledge JT you weren't Mm -hmm. supposed to say hello and like I remember seeing JT Savannah Canoop on the bus and (laughs) and being like oh my gosh there's JT and not saying hello on Muni on on the bus and then I, I didn't say hello. And then I just basically was sort of like, uh, when I got home, I emailed JT and I said, oh, I saw you on the bus. So this was after I'd already been warned not to say anything. And I got a response from some new secretary that's saying, JT's in London right now. Um, so you didn't see JT. And I remember, you know, to my credit at that time, just sort of responding, unless a- JT learned how to astral project, I know I saw JT on the bus right now. So, like, Laura um, went, you know, to London, and, you know, JT was not in London, obviously. It's an oversight. Yeah. Yeah, so there was was a lot of those weird, cagey, strange moments. Like, one time I said to Aster, Jeffrey Canoop, he was saying they live in the Tenderloin, and I was like, oh, like, where in the Tenderloin? I work in the Tenderloin. And then all of a sudden he's like, ah, well, we're also staying in the mission too. And I'm like, well, we're in the tenderloin. Who does yeah, and, yeah. And then it was just like not really giving me an answer. So then you're like, that's weird. And there'd be, like, and then in retrospect, you add up all those very weird moments. But during it, you don't, you know, you're just like, well, oh, that's weird, but whatever, you know. Can you let us know who who is Jeffrey slash Aster, and do you feel he's a victim? Oh, that's. Mm. 
interesting question, right? Mm. That's a really interesting question. One I really um, spent a lot of time. So Aster was uh, Laura Albert's partner for many, many years, and they raised a child together. They all came over originally um, um, to my house and did watercolors. And interestingly enough, Aster, Jeffrey Knoop's best friend, was someone I was friends with and close with at one point too, which is just shows how overlapping the whole worlds were. Um, is Jeffrey Knoop a victim or not? I don't even know how to answer that. That's like always that question, right? People who um, are complicit in, um, you know, a fraud or a scandal or things much worse than this, right? Who possibly, you know, are taken or brainwashed. I mean, I think, put it this way, I think Jeffrey Knoop's whole life would have went a completely different direction had he not met Laura Albert, while Laura Albert's life would have been, is hers, you know? So she, he got taken onto the right, the ride. Um, and I don't think he would, um, he would have made the choices he did, but he made his choices. So, you know, so is, he was definitely a participant, so it's hard to call him a victim per se, but I think he, um, he's not a sociopath full on, you know? Yeah. Well, you he also made a book too, right? Or wrote a, wrote a he book? He tried. I mean, he was, he's like such a funny part of it because he, he's into his music, promoting his music. He's into promoting a screenplay back to like all of them. And, you know, it's like he comes from that culture. His father was a filmmaker. I mean, he, it's the hustle culture. So he's a hustler, you know, but I don't think he, he's harmful. Like, I don't think he would have tried to like harm people, but he didn't, I don't think, you know, to be honest to everyone, I don't think Savannah Knoop and Jeffrey Knoop really knew the full extent of Laura Albert's manipulations, like on the phone. But like they obviously know when they go to the Deitch Gallery that we've gathered up a few hundred people to like ad adore this character who's a, f a figment of Laura's imagination. And that's just weird, you know. But, you know, that's an interesting question. A lot of people went along with it. Like the whole band apparently knew like, mm. people, you know, so. How big did this all get? Never. No one. No one took Thistle that seriously, which was really interesting. And, and um, Savannah, can you try or JT tried to promote Thistle quite a bit, but it never the best it did was it was on a um, compilation for uh, that other the same Furzig did that the, the director did a, a doc. What's the name of the um, that outsider musician? There's a, do a documentary on him. Oh, God. I'm just blanking out. Sugar Man. Kurt Cobain? No, I love, I love the Sugar Man documentary. It's not Kurt Cobain. It's a guy. He's an outsider artist. It's like if someone just, um, Furzik did a documentary. Jeff, the guy who did the author documentary, did his first one on it. And he's a real outsider um, Oh, and artist. shout out for licensing Swan's music. Oh, right. Oh, right. <laughs> I was, that, I, that was that 30 seconds was my only um, optioning. The rest of it was. Oh, my, really? Uh, yeah. The rest of the music's my um, my partner and uh, that he composed with uh, some of the people he collaborates with. I, I heard the swans and, you know, that's similar to the music I do. Daniel music. Johnson. Thank you. Jordan Dubin. Yeah. Daniel Johnson. Oh, da oh, OK. Right, OK. Definitely you. Daniel Johnson. That one. Yes. 
Yeah, yes, yeah. that was the movie. And Daniel, there was a compilation that Thistle got on. And they did have Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads produce them, but it never just seemed to like launch. You know, it was, it just never, for whatever, it was, I think, too poppy. Like it wasn't dark enough. The music didn't kind of fit the, um, you know, the tone of JT. This music was kind of poppy and like, we're going to change the world kind of happy music. She's almost a, I, I feel that she's a fake punk in, in a certain aspects because it seems like her, in her own words, her relationship to punk music was peripheral through a racist skinhead, which was really interesting. Right, and right, right. it's downplayed tremendously in the whole thing. Yeah, that was, I mean, she, I mean, there was like a lot of information. Like she was, like, I, um, I'm not such a punk, but what's that? Um, she was just trying to say it was all sexist. Like she'll just turn it all around. Like you're know saying, she was just saying, the, yeah, the, the like, the skinheads. Like she hung out with the skinheads, and they would like, you know, beat up, you know, fags too. I mean, like it's all very. It was always that, like, JT was special. You know, JT wouldn't be beat up or JT, you know what I mean? It was always JT transcending things, you know? Like, I'm trying to JC, think of the guy. Ian, what's racist? the guy, the straight edge punk guy? Ian, is it Ian? Ian, um, oh, God. I almost said Curtis, but that's a different Ian. But anyway, um, she's saying he's like he was sexist, like the punk scene was sexist. Yeah, a uh, uh, minor threat. Uh, Discord records, Ian. I can't think of yeah. the last. Yeah. But... Anyway, she she has a whole thing in that same footage at the end that was at the Strand. She yes. was going off on. It's almost like an excuse, like she again as a feminist, as a punk feminist. This mm-hmm. is all part of this like punk act, you know. She co-opted Vivian Westwood's entire look. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Backstory. Yeah. Unbelievable. Vivian Every, Westwood like did quote, like did give like or pose or something with JT or she wore Vivian Westwood, I believe. You know, I learned all about these fashion brands I had never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you speak more to the fashion aspect of it, MT? Because I think that really is important as the the character of JT is really blowing up and becoming a superstar. Right. Um, they were. A superstar in the fashion industry as well. Um, just the really the higher echelons. I could see, I could see them just sort of adopting this person. Like, you told me this person does this, and they're really cool. Cool. Bring them to the shoot. Like Mark Jacobs, <laughs> right? And all this, right? It was yeah. all this. It was definitely. Um, well, it's it goes back to the whole thing about imaging, right? Like, and what I was saying with the surrealists, like they, it was all this, just lots of photos and so forth. And I remember just wondering, God, like, how it made sense um, that it was a team effort. It wasn't just JT because how could JT be doing the fashion, writing the books, doing the music? I mean, I mean that is someone then who just doesn't sleep, like to have that right. much output going on. So when, when it all did come out, I was like, oh, of course. Cause like Savannah can do, um, I don't think um, she's interested in it then, but she had her own fashion line. Like she launched right away, launched when this came out, launched into, and the Chronicle had a huge photo of her launching her fashion line. And that's again, back to that point, like we were making about the, you know, the book and trying to write a book. I mean, there's all sorts of really um, legitimate and hardworking fashion lines in San Francisco of hardworking people who don't get big photo spreads. And they didn't create 
frauds or and then, you know, so that's, um, you know, that's what's so sad about it. Right. Like that's where, again, just typical and sad. In terms of the image, they were pulling on uh, Andy Warhol imagery in terms of how. Right. How uh, JT looked, and I wrote in my notes during the during the documentary, obvious Andy is obvious. Like, (laughs) why wouldn't any? Why wouldn't that be something that would make people think, hey, maybe this person is a fraud or manipulative? Well, the accent. Okay, so you actually met quote unquote Speedy Emily and quote unquote JT, right? Right. What was your take when you heard that accent? Were you like, dude, this sounds fake as hell? I I had the same reaction just tons of people had. Like I first met JT down in LA, you know, at that at, um, at the bookstore, you know, and I had been prepped a lot, like to meet, like to not to do this, not to give eye contact, not to touch JT. And then I went upstairs to like put away my camera bags and stuff, like just somewhere safe. I didn't want to leave them down. Everyone's like, don't go up there. JT is up there. And I'm like, I'm going to go up there. And I don't care if JT, I'm just getting rid of my camera bag. Right. And when I got up there, there was like JT, Savannah, Canute sitting by themselves. And JT gave me this like super warm smile with eye contact. And I was like, that is so weird. Like, and then I'm like, oh, maybe they're healing. You know what I mean? Like they're here now and they're healing. So, but Emily Speedy was the one who did all the interaction. And I came in out of nowhere, really, because I was just pulled in by a friend of a friend who's a, a, a major photographer in L.A. And um, and she she pulled me in and I was there. And so Speedy Emily was kind of like, who are you? And I was like and I knew that like Speedy was. So I was trying to be pleasant to Speedy Emily just because, you know, the way everyone was, because you're trying to do this documentary on JT. But she was odd and she was just really controlling and then wanting me to shoot pictures of the thistle band and just like it just seemed really strange but you know again i'm stretched wide i've been living in san francisco a long time i've been working with people with mental illnesses like i don't want to say anything goes but like people acting odd or abnormal has became particularly then quasi normal you know i mean Mm -hmm. so i didn't i didn't think much of it i was like oh they seem super san francisco that's all i thought like the way they were dressed and quite honestly compared to la it seemed a little refreshing like i was sort of like like you know here's stephen jenkins and these people who are just much more let's say um less norm core yeah yeah like it's all really normal sort of more mainstream and then we had these like kind of freaks from san francisco so i was glad to just to kind of jump into the the freak zone you know did you want to ask him? You wrote some really good questions, MT. I want to make sure you get them all out before we uh, sign off. Sure. Well, uh, watching the documentary also reminded me of uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Oh yeah. And her yeah. Uh, Theranos scam. Yeah. I I was in it. I mean, I didn't I didn't give her money, obviously, right? She needed more than I my seven dollars, but she she had scammed a lot of people. Um, a lot of people who were supposed to be, you know, titans of industry and to, who, exactly. Who they were doing. And uh, I, I came across this, uh, this, this interesting thing that mentioned her relationship with these older men. 
It reminded wow. me of uh, JT. Oh, yeah. 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 The older men in the documentary. And they said mm-hmm. that it wasn't really exactly a sexual thing, that she managed to occupy a space in between daughter and lover. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yep. So I thought that's that good. about JT. There was definitely a. No, I agree. I think that's really an interesting. I mean, yeah, there. I mean, it's that's a really interesting, and that's what Bruce Benderson in the documentary. I mean, I was amazed at some of the honesty of these men. Like, mm-hmm. I wasn't put off by them really. I just felt like, wow, they're so honest. Like, could I be this honest? You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know if I'm this honest because they were really, <laughs> they really yeah. it. Like, I was just like, oh wow, because like, you know, I had to think about what my motivations were. Why did I get pulled in? And you know, you have to, you you go through all those thoughts and. Um, it certainly wasn't to have sex with JT. I can tell you that. That was not one of my motivations. But um, but he um, he was really owning that was it like his the emotional needs, whether it's lover. And, you know, I actually did interview a cult psychologist, and I do really. I mean, we think that we couldn't get pulled in. Like everyone thinks that they won't join a cult or get pulled in. But the truth is, we really all do. And that's what I mean. I think that this group, it was like. It's Tom Waits. It's Lou Reed. I mean, it's like this is it's it's John Waters. I mean, these are like kind of like people whose whole um, shtick is being like dark, perverse, right? Like yeah, like these tastemakers, kind of this perverse, chic kind of stuff that they've been doing forever, and they got pulled in. And I think the underlying thing is is our we all have the same emotions we all do we all can get emotionally manipulated particularly people and this is what the cult psychologist said through transitions like you know we're we're, we're all more lonely than we want to admit you know and we're there's risk with that because again capitalism in our culture has isolated people so properly you know so people who just you know are wealthy even or you know live in these huge houses you know and it's not any better, you know, like I'm in a rent controlled apartment, two bedroom, it's been four of us, but it's cozy. And I grew up in a suburb of New York and I've seen the alienation, I've seen the dysfunction there and it's nothing I ever wanted to return to. I'm not taking out a violin for myself, but people are not well there. Again, like people are not well down at the financial um, industry either. I think that's like anytime you're being put in a position of having to exploit you're not well i mean who wants you know or like rapists they're not well right like if you're raping people that's sickness yeah but we it gets very distorted because our culture is based on that i mean that's what i realized with the the producing like that's what's going to get rewarded are the people who do exploit over and over and over and over again it's a weird constant cycle right like these older people that she went to like lou reed was done by the 90s no one really cared right saying you could say the same thing there was some tom waits like who even how is a 15 year old born in 80 even going to know who the hell tom waits is but what's right right exactly (laughs) also too what what we're missing is the fact that when you have a con of this kind um you need to to go reach out for these old iconic uh, uh, avatars of the counterculture. Right. Because the the original ones are gone. You know, you can't get Hendrix. You're not going to go reach out to Charles Manson. 
but you're going to reach out to you know Tom Waits and and Lou Reed because they're very acceptable at this, especially at this point in their lives. Right. Symbols of some sort of rebellion, and it's almost the symbols of a senseless rebellion, which to me speaks to this era that this comes out in because it's a very apolitical time. Right. You know, there's there's no politics whatsoever um, in in these stories, so. Uh, I want to just say thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you, guys. This is wonderful what you're doing here. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you for coming out, Marjorie. Really appreciate it. Learned a lot from watching your documentary and reading your work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. No, seriously, this was really interesting. Good to remember all of it, right? (laughs) (laughs) And again, I'm so glad we uh, we met via the interwebs. They are I know, I know. Right? It's Brooke Jenkins. I think we're me and um, yes. um we're we're yes. both on that Brooke Jenkins. Um, she's sitting. About- she's been sitting here yelling things the whole time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> can hear because luckily my microphone only goes in one direction. But yeah. if it was one like Pascal has, you hear. Tell her about the other thing about she forgot. <laughs> Tell about how JT lied about this. Lie, lie, lie. That's all I can hear. She's great. That's good. Well, okay. Well, yeah. Happy birthday. <laughs> Please keep right. on just. Okay. Have a good one. Have a great day. Enjoy your day. Okay. Bye. You. Take care. And that was Marjorie. Still struggling with this. Like. I have to, I'm, I'm also stressed, so I have to, uh, I will apologize on air. I, Marcus wasn't just mad because of the conversation. I muted him. Oh, you did a preemptive mute? That's why I mean, that was a dick move, and we are going to talk. And by talk, I mean, I'm going to sit there and let him scold me. <laughs> Marcus and. Y'all, y'all, y'all do what y'all have to do. Yeah, throw it out, throw it out. It happens. It happens. No. It happens. I know him in real life, so I'd rather do it virtually yeah. than personally. Because yeah, he's big enough to beat your ass. He is. He is. Because you're know, not he's, he's quicker than you think with that size. And the last time I'm trying to do is catch them hands. They're big. You got the really hands. light red locks. You got the really light red locks. <laughs> <laughs> you can stick a move with those. Yeah, I'm, look, look, I'm not trying to have all the Jamaican come out in an ass <laughs> 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 That boy tried to silence me. Yes, yes, the chat in the audience loves Marcus. We need Marcus for our Saturdays. The show yes. Saturdays are not the same without Marcus. We love Marcus. Yeah. And when the, the last thing I need right now is. Uh, to see Marcus in D.C. and have him slap the taste out of my mouth and them big-ass <laughs> banana hands. Yes. He is a giant. Why do you got to be banana hands, though? Because he's a big Negro. He knew he had banana hands when he had his big-ass family. <laughs> he's, he's sitting there right now adding all these to the list of things. And that's... And mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have to say that about bananas? Check. Check. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about machetes? Check. <laughs> yeah, I brought up machetes. Jamaican accent. In Jamaica, they call a machete a cutlass. 
I'm not trying to get a cutlass up the ass. <laughs> Marcus is mad. <laughs> Have my butthole looking like JT's fucking real. Damn. Anyway, anyway. We coming for you, nigga. That wow. is not how I'm trying to live my life with a bunch of ex-veterans doing fucking covert ops to whoop my ass. That's right, man. You better get a shrink of Marcus. Marcus knows how to shoot right with the Lord right now. Marcus knows how to shoot a couple of guns. Jason doesn't want to get Gaddafi. Exactly. I do not. Have Marcus's homeboys give me like fucking Rushdie. I'm not trying to have it. No, no, no. No, no. Yeah. So I'm going to. We're going to finish this show. Thank you. Oh, so much. Pascal and Toussaint. Pascal right. will have the night off Tuesday as we'll be discussing uh, the Woodstock 99 piece that is coming out in Sublation Monday with musician and personal friend Pasquale Romero, where I will constantly call him Pascal probably for a good hour and a half. producing the Mau with me or is it going to be our other co-producers? Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah, of course. All right, very good. Team all right, thing brother. Too. It's all the time me, and it's all the time you. Well, all right. Mm-hmm. I appreciated the show today. This was good. Happy birthday again. Happy birthday again. Thank you, Thank you both of you. Trying uh, to get right. yourself killed the day after your birthday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing now because I'm not going to be laughing in like three minutes. There you are. I'm just going to sit here and be like, what the rot clot boy? Mm-hmm. Yep, he's going mm-hmm. after you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all it's going to be is like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. I do be doing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I can't. I can't say anything. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. You know who does that to me too? MT. What? I have to. Sometimes she starts talking, and it's so true. I got to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. When I'm getting scolded, it's like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You did drop the baby. Yeah. yeah. I just gotta go. Mm-hmm. Me and Pascal can just holler for a minute and it's fine. But everybody else is like, mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I don't know what he's talking about. Pascal doesn't seem like he gets a step. Pascal's just loud. He talks loud in general. He talks loud. Except when we're checking a mic. <laughs> So we're checking the mic. He's got the coolest radio voice in the goddamn world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everyone has jokes. Everyone has jokes. They do. Look, look, this is, this is all it's going to be. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm getting ready right now just to take this verbal ass whoop because the physical one would be real. It'd be one of those, hey, man. Rule book says, I gotta punch you. <laughs> I gotta punch you. <laughs> Not in the face. Not in the face. <laughs> like, what? It's like, oh, whatever is coming, it's gonna hurt. Because you punch it down with all that strength and size. Because you're not 5'10. Yeah, that's true. Because you're athletic. Like, oh, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I'm glad y'all are gonna work it out. That's yes. Good. Well, you know, look, man, I'm very difficult. And I'm going to flinch 
at the words. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys for hanging out with us. Uh, the link in the description to almost said Laura to <laughs> Marjorie's documentary is right there. You can watch it. Let us know what you think. Leave a comment if you're listening to this on the audio only. Leave a comment on what you think about the documentaries. Go watch Laura Albert's documentary as well because, again, when you watch hers, there's a lot of you – know, I didn't send you guys the link to hers, but there's a lot of missing points, and it's, it's nonlinear. It's all over the place. And at the end, Laura Albert goes, what did they think it was? It was always a fiction book. Mm. And she leaves out a lot of that dirty talk that she did to all those writers. Just, I was just, you, oh, you know what we left out? One very important thing that we left out. Um, and I don't know if it, it's not a big deal in, in uh, Marjorie's documentary, but the JT Leroy character that Laura creates is saying that she's talking to these writers in a bathroom where all these junkies are shooting up. And she goes, I can send you my work right now. One of my Johns bought me a fax machine. And I'm like, what? shitty bathroom are you shooting up in with a phone line in it and an outlet I'm so glad JT has that outlet that he can he can get his work out through this fax machine in this <laughs> dope bathroom uh, everybody's shooting, shooting up around him and he's like don't mind me I'm gonna plug in my fax machine claimed to have HIV as well, which was I felt really sinister. Yes, said 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 they had HIV and then that it went away. Said got See, the Magic Johnson treatment. That's right. And people were like, "Yeah, I'm, that's great. You look great today." Love that outfit. <laughs> yes, I want to see that scene in the film. <laughs> The junkies around the fact, my John, I said, I'll I'll let you do whatever you want as long as I can get a fax machine that has some sort of magical hookup in 1993 to this thing called a cellular phone. And I definitely know how to use a fax machine, and I definitely know they exist. I keep writing about not being able to read and being born in a truck stop with a mom that can't read. She's also in a truck stop. But technology is just my thing. I program VCRs for my Johns as well because they tend to be of an older group of men. Fix the time on the microwave for them. <laughs> it's just like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Like, why do you want like a voice that's like strum at like a crack house? I mean, like, <laughs> that was the voice. That was the voice that that he used. Can't believe how many times he said he can't read. I can't even hear. Like, yeah. Anyway, man, I'm gonna get some records. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Marjorie said that the Amazon took her documentary down, and she has a correct link. She's sending it to me right now. Well, I'm gonna put it in the chat. Okay, um, cool. And for the audio only listeners, it'll be in the description for the audio only. So I apologize for that. Marjorie sending me the new link. Give me one second. My computer moves slow, much like JT's fax machine connection. Mm-hmm. It was magical. <laughs> Cellular phone it was one of those big ones that kind of had a base in it that you would only see Cuban drug dealers use and things like Miami Vice. 
was a person. <laughs> What'd you say? Fry Festival was a person? Who yep. said that? You said that? Me, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everything that woman did was so fucking stupid. Like, you know, Her fake British accent sounded like this. It was all loud, like Robin Leach describing some rich asshole's yacht. Please, sir, can I have some more? <laughs> it's very like Oliver spotty, Twisty. Spotty, 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 spotty. <laughs> She's a proper lady. I'm like, she's hanging out with Bono. I was like, the motherfucker's from Ireland. You're going to tell me he doesn't know any British people? Or does he just say he has so many accents? Because it's so hard to keep track. Is, or is it like the way people treat Madonna for that, like, 10 years that she talked with that weird accent where she was kind of British but not really? It's like, aren't you from Detroit? <laughs> is that what it was when she was like... JT's got this manager. I think she might be on the spectrum, but uh, she might be on the spectrum. Wow. Hey, what the fuck? No one took that woman. They all took her seriously. In it. In it. <laughs> when, you know what her accent sounded like when Jean Bajlan tries to have a country accent. Oh. Yeah. When Gene Bajlan does his country accent of the people that he is around, that's what the JT Leroy accent sounds like. She had the, uh, what's the name, the guy in Mary Poppins? She had that. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke! <laughs> she had the Dick Van Dyke chimney sweep type <laughs> joint. <laughs> God damn! God damn chimney sweep. He will never live that down. <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, everyone. <laughs> hello, governor. <laughs> we got a cheery story about a little boy prostitute. <laughs> like, what a horrible person. Like, uh, seriously, yeah. also, guys, watch Marjorie's documentary because one thing that Laura's documentary doesn't get into at all is the way that, actually, and this is what I found very, very heartbreaking is that the LGBTQ community in San Francisco really got behind JT because they felt JT was a voice for them and the exploitation that they deal with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And uh, they even had made a statement about it. And then when it all came out that it was fake, a lot of people also, too, stopped their support for that community in mass. So really horrible things this woman did you know we're we're literally making fun of her because she deserves to be made fun of and i did not put her name originally I was, it took me like 20 minutes to write this title up again because i wanted to write laura albert like but I, but because marjorie was like no anytime her name comes up she does like a search and she'll take shit down so the last thing i want to deal with is some you know cockney southerner calling me up 
From the turn of the century. <laughs> the turn of the century copy Southerner. So thank you guys. And we will... I'll see you guys Tuesday. And you'll see these people a Wednesday. Not MT. You'll never see me. She's coming to the Mama. Oh. Yeah, I'll be there. I should be on the phones, too. Because I'm a real person, not like JT or Amy Therese. You won't see me, but I am a real person. You should string all the calls like JT. <laughs> no. We got to wrap it up, Jason. The accent was so bad. <laughs>